What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Cat Brooks. The new Ella Baker Center-led survey of more than 500 people incarcerated in California state prisons warns that large numbers of folks have been subjected to extreme heat, dangerous cold, flooding, and wildfires. The report is called Hidden Hazards, the Impacts of Climate Change on Incarcerated People in California State Prisons. The report was produced by Master of Public Policy graduate students from the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs on behalf of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. We are joined this morning by Emily C. Harris, co-director of programs at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and a contributor to the Hidden Hazards Report. Good morning, Emily. Good morning, Kat. And we are also joined by Maura O'Neill, co-author of the Hidden Hazards Report and a UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs graduate. Good morning, Maura. Good morning, Kat. Thank you both so much for coming on the show this morning. Um, Maura, I'm going to start with you. Uh, This information comes from a survey where the particular incidents that put this on your radar? Did it come through the Ella Baker Center? How did you get engaged? Yeah, thanks for having me on. So this project came up as a part of our capstone report for the Master of Public Policy. And when we met with Emily to discuss potentially working together, she outlined the fact that there wasn't a lot of research on this issue and that with climate change, with these climate hazards increasing, people inside were at risk. So that's really where we jumped off and, and started working with Emily um, and thought it was really important to do this research. And then what we realized was there wasn't a lot of input from currently incarcerated folks. So that's the reason we decided to send out that survey um, and do that undertaking. Emily, how about for you? How does the release of this report, the exploration of this issue, um, tie in with the advocacy work Ella Baker Center does for our folks that are on the inside? Yeah, thank you for that question. The Ella Baker Center had, has been organizing with people in prison for a long time. And as you know, with the recent COVID-19 outbreak that had incredibly awful impacts in particular on our friends and comrades at San Quentin State Prison, we became you know, acutely aware of how unprepared the Department of Corrections is to keep our loved ones healthy and safe. And during the pandemic, we also saw a series of wildfires, the LNU lightning complex fire that approached um, the California medical facility and also um, the, the Dixie fire that got very close to the two prisons in Susanville. And I think that kind of escalated our fear. We were, we were in the midst of COVID-19 and seeing, you know, trying to, protect our loved ones and make sure that they were alive and then simultaneously watching as these fires were approaching prisons. And so I think we wanted to think through how we could get ahead of that, um, how we could be pushing the state to be more prepared to keep our loved ones safe. Uh, and so that was partly why we chose to collaborate with the public policy crew. They've been incredible. And we thought that if we heard from people in prison and from experts across the country, we might be able to think through creative strategies that could keep people safe without um, further, you know, investing in the prison industrial complex and, and think through more creative solutions that would actually be more permanent and long-term and protect people's lives. 
Maura, I'm interested in uh, the fact that you all sent out a survey. We know that CDCR does not always love to um, allow uh, our incarcerated folks to engage in these kinds of processes. Um, how did you how did you get CDCR to comply? Was there any resistance? What were the obstacles you all had to overcome? That's a great question. So Emily can probably speak a little bit further to this after um, I finish because Emily helped coordinate the actual mailing of the surveys. Um, we did have some return from CDCR and resent those because there seemed to be some resistance. Um, a lot of what I saw in the survey response, we had put a deadline um, to submit the finalized survey response. And a lot of people wrote in the notes at the bottom, hey, I didn't get this till after the deadline. I hope you still accept it, which we were luckily able to do given our timeline with the research. But I know there were a lot of delays, um, a lot of um, issues getting the surveys into certain prisons, but not all. Um, and I think, Emily, I don't know if you want to speak a little bit further to that. Yeah, luckily, the Ella Baker Center is in touch with close to 9,000 people who are in um, California prisons. And so we just contacted people directly who were we were already in touch with. So we didn't actually have to go through um, the department for their permission, per se. Um, and actually, we found a lot more obstacles in trying to engage the Department of Corrections and other aspects of the, the research. All right, let's get into some of the meat of the report. How many prisons are in California? And out of those, how many are in jeopardy of being impacted by climate disaster? So the report outlines that 18 prisons are at the highest risk and most vulnerable. Um, I would argue, looking at the responses from the survey, that all are facing extreme heat um, or some other type of hazards. We had 66% of people say they had experienced extreme heat at some point. And we know there's detrimental health impacts, which some of our survey respondents outlined. And so though our report focuses on 18 prisons done, that we figured out from a mapping analysis, I do think that further research can go into really figuring out um, that these other prisons are also at risk. There's a total of 34 in the state. Emily, I want to paint a picture of some of the specific realities of climate disaster that are or will impact incarcerated people in California. But the first prison that came to my mind was a place like Corcoran that is in the middle of a desert. Can you talk about how bad things could get inside there for our folks? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that we had heard over and over again from the respondents was just how little control they have over their own well-being, right? They're in in completely dependent on the department for their well-being, you know, <clears throat> and with things like the extreme heat, we were hearing about the absence of even just like shade or access to water, ice, um, and that people described things like, you know, sitting in their cell and having the you know, basically having the walls sweating because it was so hot in the prisons. Um, and so, you know, there's extreme health concerns, a particular like a huge number of our survey respondents were taking some type of medication that made them even more susceptible to heat exposure. And so I think the, you know, the extreme heat is 
happening across the state. We know there's, you know, so many prisons throughout the Central Valley and places where there's um, a lot of, you know, a lot of the climate impacts are already happening every day. All summer long, we're going to be hearing from people about the impact of the heat. And then I think in terms of some of the other issues that we really saw in the report and then have also come to life while we've been developing the report. So for example, with the snowmelt, the Tulare Basin in the Central Valley is, mm-hmm. you know, there's been this anticipation of the flooding and two mm-hmm. prisons are Corcoran, one of them, um, and the substance abuse facility, which is also in Corcoran, are both in the basin. 8,000 people live in those prisons. And, you know, we already knew that roads were getting shut down. There were, you know, people were asking while we were working on the report, they're like, what are they going to, are we going to be able to take our stuff if they evacuate us? Are they going to evacuate us? And so I think that the, you know, the fear for people's lives is, is very real and it is happening now. Maura, what did your research reveal about any types of policy, practice, anything that CDCR has in place for uh, when, if climate disasters strike or natural disasters strike? Yeah, so that was one of the biggest struggles of our research because we weren't able to directly informally contact CDCR, the um, California Department of Corrections that runs the prisons in this state. And so without being able to directly talk to them, um, we had trouble actually tracking down what those responses were. Um, What we were able to find, there are some um, heat plans in place for when there is extreme heat. Um, But our survey revealed that, you know, things like the necessity of providing ice that was outlined in that heat plan wasn't necessarily followed through because our survey respondents said, you know, they they struggled to get access to ice on extremely hot days. And so we started to kind of uncover a few different, um, you know, strategies in place that CDCR did have, but some of our research um, working with people on the inside did, you know, overturn some of that. So we were unsure whether, um, you know, everything was being followed through on that was in writing. Emily, talk about what makes prisons uniquely vulnerable to climate disaster. Um, and, and in my head, I'm, I'm thinking of the disaster that, you know, our, our relatives inside just went through with the COVID pandemic, right? Like there was no way to facilitate a, a safe environment inside of prisons just because of the way they were built. Can you tug on that thread a little bit for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, as they're institutions of control, right? And we know that California prisons have been at extreme overcrowding. We're in a much, you know, we've seen much more decarceration in California, but still the living conditions are incredibly crowded, Um, you know, tube living in the size of a bathroom. Um, And so there is both the like people packed in as sardines and then the actual infrastructure of our prisons is incredibly decrepit and aging. The air circulation is awful. All the things that we saw play out in COVID-19. And so and then similarly, I think the unpreparedness exists in, you know, one of the things that we found from our survey respondents is that um, 92% of incarcerated 
people that we surveyed were unfamiliar of an emergency plan to follow in the case of a flood. And 88% were unaware in the case of a wildfire. So if the individuals who are caged don't know what to do, then we know that you know chaos is likely to ensue if we get to a place where we're really facing incredible danger. And so there was you know very little training on safety protocols for people in prison. And the fact that the folks were so unfamiliar with any emergency plans in any case of any climate hazard was an extreme concern for us. Because if the currently incarcerated people who are going to be, of course, like the most, um, take the most responsibility for their safety and well-being, if they don't know, um, it feels very unlikely that the people who are caging them know, know either. You know, whether they know or care, um, the folks doing the caging. Um, mm-hmm. Maura, if you were to pull out some of the top findings from the report, uh, what, what, what would those be? Uh, that's a great question. So we had four major findings in our report. I think they all link together pretty well and, and lead into the eight recommendations we ultimately gave. Um, so off top, those four recommendations kind of outline that these 18 prisons are particularly vulnerable to wildfire floods and extreme heat. And you can see the report to understand a little bit more um, the mapping analysis that went into that. Besides the prisons that are vulnerable, we also saw that from a lot of our interviews and, and from our conversations and research that the reactive measures that were applied during COVID-19 that led to a great loss of life and um, impact on people who are currently incarcerated, that we fear that that would be something that would occur in the instance of a climate hazard or climate disaster. And then we ultimately also found that um, CDCR takes insufficient steps to prepare and mitigate for climate um, hazards and disasters, and um, you know we've spoken a little bit to to why that is. Um, I'll add that based on your previous question, the fire drills are in the Department of um, CDCR's operations manual, and they should be happening ac- according to what's written on paper. But our survey did find that um, there is inconsistency across prisons, and that some people, you know, have have barely done any fire drills in their time. Um, with behind bars. Um, So all that being said, our kind of final major finding is that decarceration is a strategy to help mitigate these effects that we're seeing, to help prevent these reactive measures that we saw during COVID-19, to help um, reduce the impact of, of climate hazards on people inside. Decarceration really is an effective strategy. Thank you, Maura. Emily, Governor Gavin Newsom has painted a very public national picture of himself as a front runner in the fight against climate disaster, even threatening to fight with the federal government. Where is he on the issue of addressing climate disaster for our folks incarcerated in California? That's a great question. (laughs) From what we can see, there's very little. So, for example, I, I mentioned with the uh, to Larry Basin. We know that Governor Newsom flew down. He toured the basin and met with a lot of the local residents who were not locked up. There was very little mention of the 8,000 people who were at extreme risk just from the flooding there. Um, not to mention, you know, the governor is currently trying to build this new California model 
the new wave of mass incarceration in California. And one of his goals there is to reconstruct the um, parts of San Quentin State Prison. And in the report, one of the findings is that that prison, the land, is in one of the highest risk zones, like a FEMA flood zone A. So it is incredibly, it's like the most likely place to flood in California. And so then we're going to be investing millions of state resources into building a prison that will likely eventually be underwater or, or risking people's lives. And so to me, there's there seems to be a pretty strong disconnect in terms of you know, this was also one of the the significant findings and recommendations of the report is there are communities that have been identified as vulnerable when it comes to climate change, but incarcerated people are not included in that definition of who is considered vulnerable. And yet, mm. the with the findings of the report, I would argue, and especially because they cannot, you know, flee on their own if there's an evacuation, right? They're, they are entirely dependent on the state. Um, that they are probably actually the most at risk and the most in most, you know, in danger if, in fact, they're facing a climate hazard that if any of us in the free world faced, we would have some at least some autonomy, even to be able to, like, Google an escape route. Right. Folks inside wouldn't mm-hmm. have any any access to be able to figure out even how to like keep themselves safe in those um, in those events. Maura, any other uh, proposed solutions for addressing this uh, disaster, this pending disaster um, across our prisons that are highlighted in the report. Yeah, I touched a little bit on decarceration, but I think mm-hmm. um, one major thing we wanted to hit on was strengthening oversight of CDCR to ensure that, you know, while these prisons are in existence, that there's some accountability so that people inside are, are protected. Um, there's some review reporting um, that there's some public and legislative oversight. So that was a major um, theme that also came up for us as well. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much for joining me this morning. Thank you for the report. Thank Thank you you so much, Kevin. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs>